0: We're in the crucifixion right now and um, we're in Matthew chapter 27 and uh, we finished verse 44. So now we're going to begin in verse 45. And so let's pick it up there. And it says this. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now the sixth hour at that time... That's noon. That's when it's the brightest part of the day. And so we see at the crucifixion, at the midpoint of the crucifixion, because he's six. He's up there for six hours. At the midpoint, it gets completely dark in the sky. It's midnight in the middle of the day. And that's an amazing thing, especially when this is the brightest, sunniest part of the day. But then darkness falls. Uh, there's a lot of midpoint stuff as we've been studying on... Um, uh, our last call series on Sunday morning. It's the midpoint of the tribulation when really all hell begins to break loose and darkness really comes through the judgments of God and the Antichrist. You know, he steps up and really hunts people down. So these midpoint things are really interesting. But it says here that darkness fell upon the entire land, it falls for three hours. Now, that's interesting to me because if you study the Bible, you're going to find out there's certain Consistencies uh, within the area of specifically judgment. There is all kinds of consistencies, but judgment, and one of them is this one right here. And so, um, I want I want you to turn to Exodus chapter ten, very just briefly, Exodus ten, and and let me read something to you. When it, when he it came to a uh, to the ninth plague, when God was bringing the plagues through Moses upon Egypt forcing Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Pharaoh wasn't going to do it until the final plague. But look at the ninth plague. It says in verse uh, 21, 2, and 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. And it literally means to feel, to grope, to explore like that. You could feel it so dark. That's an eerie darkness. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Interesting, darkness for three days in judgment. Jesus on the cross, he's carrying the sins of mankind. He's taking the judgment and the wrath and it's going dark for three days. Verse 23, They did not see uh, one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Uh, But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. I like that because... Though it's dark in Egypt, over in Goshen, where the Israelites are, God had light. And so there was still like God's witness there. But you take that and you bring it over here to Matthew chapter 27, judgment and judgment. Three hours, three days. Darkness, judgment. Darkness, here for three hours. And you see that there are consistencies of judgment. Now, what I find fascinating is this. Um, and thank God. Thank um, God. You you see, Jesus is carrying the sins, your sins and mine. Once we put our faith in him, we now acquired his salvation, his justification. His blood can now cleanse us. We've asked for forgiveness of sin, and we're all sinners. Ain't a person on this planet that is not a sinner. We all are. You, me, all of us. And we need to remember that to certain extent, lest we think we're above other things, and, and we're not. But think about that. He's taking the judgment. And what's being portrayed here, darkness, one, is Jesus in excruciating pain? You better believe it. In a moment, you're going to see that he calls out, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. Why? So there's forsaken. God's not there, does he? And so you see darkness, you see pain, you see they're forsaken by God. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of hell. Jesus on the cross, God the Father, they're showing us what a picture of hell is like and the torment. First, it's going to be eternal darkness. It is never light there. It's a darkness that you're groping that a person cannot see. It's pain. It's excruciating pain. There's torment and it never, never ends. Not only that, it's the absence of God. That's got to be the worst thing about hell. It's the absence of God. Why have you forsaken me? It's the absence of God. And so Jesus is showing us exactly through the torment, through the crucifixion. This is a taste of hell. This is a taste of what I'm trying to deliver every person on the planet from. If they would just turn to me, if they would just give their lives to me, I could lead them away from this place. So that's verse 45. Verse 46 says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, so about three o'clock, he's crying out now with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's in Aramaic, by the way. Uh, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a few things we want to point out uh, from this uh, passage right here. And the first thing is, Jesus, who has been silent the whole time now it says he cries out he breaks his silence why why all of a sudden now does jesus decide to break his silence well i think there's one i think thing we could say for sure on that and that's this because now he's at the moment where because he's carrying our sins god the father has now separated from him because He has carried our sins on His body, and now for the first time in His eternal existence, because Jesus always was. He has no beginning and He has no end. Everything that we see created was created out of spiritual, out of the invisible, by a great God that we have who has no beginning and has no end, that doesn't need anything to self-support Him. He exists by His own power, His own nature. And so He is God. Only a God could create all these things. But Jesus now, who's been in eternal fellowship and relationship with Him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, remember when He makes mankind in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image. Remember Isaiah 6, when Isaiah hears Him saying, who will go for us? Us, plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so now for the first time, Jesus experiences separation. So, That's such torment him, it's worse than the physical torment. And so he opens his mouth and he breaks silence and he cries out with a loud voice, My God, My God, why has you forsaken me? Now, when you see this and and his cry, you got to go back to um, verse 43, you don't have to turn there, but in the same chapter, when they're ridiculing him and mocking him, One of the things they said was, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Well, that's interesting because they're telling him to trust in God. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he actually doing? He's trusting in God. He still trusts in God. Now, let me tell you something about that. His cry is a cry of distress, not of distrust. Did you hear what I said? It's a cry of distress, not of distrust. Now, we'll get to that in a second. And let me make the simile come back to it. You see, he knows now what it feels like to be you and me when we cry out to God and we feel like we're not heard. Hold that thought just for a second. But let me go back to this, my God, my God, why? He says, why have you forsaken me? That's a question. That's a question. What's the answer to the question? Why have you forsaken me? Well, I want to take you to an interesting passage. It's well known to many Christians if you've been studying the Bible for a while. But go back to where these words are quoted in the Old Testament. Let's go to Psalm 22. And let's start at verse one. That's the first time that's ever happened. I opened up my Old Testament right to the page. And if you're looking for the page, it's page 848. Now look at Psalm 22. This is uh, the quotation. Psalm 22 is the, the crucifixion chapter. You read that and you go, oh my gosh. And this psalm was written 1,000 years before the crucifixion. Oh, is the Bible amazing or what? So prophetically, this is, this is outstanding. Now watch verse 1. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Whoa, there's the quote. So the question, why? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. In other words, I'm not being delivered. I'm groaning. I'm speaking out. Oh my God, I cry by day. But you do not answer. You know how that feels and so do I. And by night, but I have no rest. Watch what he says now. In verse 3, yet you are Holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Wait a minute. When he speaks and cries to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He answers the question here in verse 3. When he says, Yet you are holy, God the Father. The answer to the question of why have you forsaken me is because God is holy. Well, you say, well, Wait, Jim, I don't get it. God is holy. Jesus is carrying the sins of humanity. And God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. See, that's why people would all go to hell if Jesus didn't intervene in this thing right here. Because God is holy, God separates. And when Jesus feels a separation because God is holy, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the writer answers the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is holy. Jesus knew the moment was coming, but it's so terrifying to him. It's so weird and awkward and unnatural. It's worse than the physical torment because he says, My God, my God, why? Yet you are holy. It makes perfect sense, my friends. Now, one one last thing I want to point out about this is that God uh, can relate to us, especially when you and I cry to him, God, when are you going to do this? Why this? Why this? And there's no answer. Well, We do know this, let's turn to um, Hebrews chapter four. In Hebrews chapter four, because every one of us, what we're gonna do at times when we don't get the answers we want, when we want, we're, we're we're gonna cry to God and we may even begin to doubt. And if you have momentary doubts, don't panic. You haven't lost your salvation, God's not mad at you. You're human, you're still in a flesh and blood body, okay? But know this about Jesus Christ. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, that's talking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize. It means to be affected with feeling. In other words, Jesus is affected with feeling, with our weaknesses, with what you and I go through. But one, him, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You see, what it's telling us is this that what you and I feel when we're going through hard times, and some of you are going through it right now, it's a very difficult season for you because of whatever it may be, and we cry my God, my God, why? Where are you? But Jesus can sympathize with you. You know, I don't know why God answers certain things and not other things. I like to say I'll understand always in reverse because I'm not God, and I'm a finite little mind, and I'm not infinite like God. I don't know A to Z and all the rest of it, but I have to trust God that God is holy, but he can sympathize with me. He does know what I feel. He did walk this earth in the flesh. He does know what it's like to feel this and this and this and this. He knows it all. So he can sympathize with my weaknesses. So never think that you serve a God that doesn't know what you're going through. He does know what you're going through. Okay. Okay, guys. Um, verse 47. And some of those were standing there when they heard it, when they heard Jesus cry out, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. What? Why would would they say that? Why would they think when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, why would they instantly equate Eli, Eli, you know, which is a word for God, you know, uh, God, my God, my God, why would they equate it with? Elijah of the Old Testament saying he's calling for Elijah. Well, there's, a, there's something interesting about that. Now, turn to the last book of the Old Testament. So you don't have to go very far. You're in the first book of the New Testament. Go to the last book of the Old Testament and, um, and watch this. The last two verses, Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Wow, this is the last words of the Old Testament. I think I shared this on Father's Day. The last words of the Old Testament, and then you get 400 years of silence, and God isn't speaking. You have His written word up to that time. These are His last words. They must be important, huh? Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Hmm. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse." Elijah's coming back, he said. I'll get to that in a second. Let me make a couple comments here. Is it possible, which it is, that God looked into the future, and saw the fatherless homes, so how many children were abandoned by fathers? How many men were just having sex with girls and women and then getting them pregnant and then off they go to the next girl and the next girl and the next girl? Is it possible? I think he did. Is it possible he saw the breakdown of the family all over the world? Yes, he did. You know, we, we hear a lot about, you know, um, and I won't have time to go into detail, but how important, you know, there's a, like this, you know, the equality between men and women. And I agree with it, but there are different roles, and that's what they don't teach you. They just push equality, which is correct, but it's a half, half correction because there's different roles. The father figures in the, in the family is important. Go look at all the stats. Go look at what happens on a high percentage and all the different things that happen to these kids as they grow up, what they get into, because there's no father in the home. There's no strong man there. We need strong fathers to stay in homes. We need families to stay together. I think he saw in the future. So Elijah's coming back, and one of his missions was to restore families, to keep families intact. Now, do you know, or did you know, some of you know this, That at the Passover meal that they celebrate every year, the Seder, they leave an empty chair for, guess who, Elijah at the dinner table because he's coming back. And so they're waiting for him. He's coming back. But here's the thing. Elijah's coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. So what it means is this. And here's what's interesting when you go back to Matthew 27 when they say he's calling for Elijah. They know Elijah. They know the verse. They know Elijah, uh, it's been announced he's coming back, but Jesus clarifies it. In Luke chapter 1, Jesus says, look, the Elijah that came, that came back is none other than John the Baptist. And then Jesus gives specific clarification when he says, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Oh, not reincarnation. Some people try to bend, twist, turn, things like that into reincarnation. Sorry, not what Jesus said. He is saying, John the Baptist came. He was Elijah, but in the spirit and power. The same type of spirit, the same type power. A strong prophet, and the power of the Lord was upon this man. So, when you put it all together, and they're calling for Elijah, uh, and they're saying maybe Elijah's going to hear because we know Elijah's going to come still. So it's really saying that these, these people standing there that they missed it. They missed the fact that Elijah, John the Baptist already came. And therefore when you miss it at the beginning, you miss it all. They couldn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah because they missed it at the beginning. because remember, they asked Jesus the baptism of John was it from heaven or from men? Jesus will ask you a question. In our, they, they said, He says, I ask you a question. Sorry about that. He says, The baptism of John, was it from heaven or man? They go, We do not know. Well, they, they knew, but they didn't want to admit it. And so they missed it at the beginning, at the baptism. If you miss it at the beginning, you miss it all. And they still miss it right there because they're still waiting for Elijah. Elijah came in the form of John the Baptist, spirit and power. They missed it there, they miss it now. Never forget, that's an important life lesson. If you miss it at the beginning, you miss it all. Now, Verse 48. Um, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. Oh, you know, I like that. As much as it's gruesome on the cross and all that's going on in Jesus' body and the cramping and the, the pain shooting through his limbs and the positioning of the wrought iron nails and his and his heart pumping and the blood thickening and You know, and his back is wide open. Somebody runs and gets a sponge and they put it on a reed. They dip it in sour wine to give him a drink. I like that because remember we've talked about reeds before. That Jesus fixed broken reeds. That was his ministry. You and I are broken people. He's fixing us. Matthew chapter 12 around verse 20. And then later on, they're on the guards when he's arrested. They, t- they take the reed, put it in his hand, and then they take it out of his hand and beat him over the head. So some, so it's a picture, in my opinion, of reeds that Jesus has done great things for. And then they turn around and betray Jesus. And then now we see a reed being used for a good thing. Which kind of a reed are you going to be? One that beats Jesus over the head or one that brings him something to serve him with, like this this drink in his agony? We all have a choice. We all have a choice. Um... Uh, Let's see, verse 49, but the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Isn't that kind of a curious question? Let's, you know, and I wish you we could know in what kind of attitude they said it. What if they really possibly believe, well, well, let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see if he shows up because we know the prophecy. What if they thought for a second, oh my gosh, What if Elijah comes back down in a chariot of fire right now? Isn't that something if they thought that was a possibility? Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He dies. Cries out. And we know the words, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now let me say a couple things about that one before we get into the cool next verse. Because there's a lot of things going on in, in these verses here. Jesus says, it is finished. This is the word we know from other Gospels. That's what he's saying. He cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. <laughs> Into the hands I commend my spirit and he dies. Hmm. And yet in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke tells us, he writes about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Wait a minute, Jesus finished it, Luke says He only began it. what's, What's going on here? Well, it's two different things. Jesus finished, He accomplished, being the sacrifice for our sins. That's finished, that's a done deal now. I shed my blood, I carried your sins, I died, I took the wrath. It is finished, you don't have to go through that. But... He began the ministry in Acts 1.1 of reaching the world for Him, of reaching lost people. You and I, once we put our faith in Him as a follower of Christ, it's our job to carry on what He began, and that is reaching lost folks, sharing with Jesus, sharing Jesus with others. It's getting a little more difficult as each year goes by in our country as we move uh, away from a Judeo-Christian ethic, but Never forget, you got the power of God and the Holy Spirit's always moving, always moving. And you can't tell where a heart is. They may look like they're fighting it, but so did Paul. Paul was fighting this Jesus thing all the way. He was killing Christians and everything else, but he was the closest to it. He, 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 he got hit, man. Someone once said, they go, well, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, how do you know which one you hit? The one that yells the loudest how do you know which one you're getting? How how do you know which one you're you're penetrating the heart with the Word of God? The one that screams the loudest. Sometimes you'll be sharing with somebody and they're just angry and antagonistic. That's because it's penetrating. They've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness according to Romans 1. But when you're sharing the truth, that's coming up. They're trying to suppress and it's coming up. And they're getting ever so close to becoming a Christian. Never forget that. Never forget that. You threw the rock in there, the gospel, bang, hits them, they're screaming the loudest. Now, another thing I like out of verse um, 50 is this. He says, into thy hands, uh, he says, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. What? Yeah. It is finished. Day six of creation. God finished. And then Jesus says, uh. Into the hands I commit my spirit. Meaning, Jesus rests. It is finished. Sixth statement. Into the hands I commit my spirit. Seventh statement. Sixth day, God finishes the work of creation. Seventh day, God rests. You see the same thing right here. Isn't that a cool parallel? I just like that a lot. And then verse 51 And behold, here it is, man, here when it all rock and rolls at three o'clock in the afternoon. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Whoa, guys, this is an amazing accomplishment. It says from top to bottom. Let me just tell you about this veil. The veil itself, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 10 inches thick. It took 300 priests just to hang the thing, and it ripped from top to bottom. Is that amazing or what? It's showing you only God could do that. But th- there's a massive significance to this. But before I tell you the significance, let me, um, let me say this first. Look at, look at that verse there in your Bible, if you're with me. It says, the earth, um, the earth shook. The word Greek word shook is size, S-E-I-S, seismology. We know that, right? Seismology, or, you know, earthquake, everything shaking, and then the rocks. Oh, rocks! The word for rocks is crust of the earth. Woo! And then the word for split, shizo. It means it's actually split. This is an interesting thing that the earth is rocking and rolling. And there's, it's shaking. The crust of the earth is splitting. We know when Jesus was baptized, the heavens split. We know when they cross the Red Sea, it's split. We know when they cross the Jordan, it's split. There's all kinds of split going on. But here's the thing about this verse. When Jesus dies, all of creation is rocking and rolling. It's being awakened. It's being torn apart because the Creator is here on the scene. In Romans 8, it says creation groans. It wants to be repaired also. It wants to be redeemed. This is a fallen world, and here it's it's shaken. It's split, and it's everything. It's an amazing moment when you look at the Greek words, but that's not the amazing part of the verse. It says the veil rent in two. Why is that a big deal? Because it was the separator between God in the holiest of holies and man in the holy place. You couldn't cross into there, into the presence of God in that tabernacle, in that temple with this veil there. Unless you were that one priest once here, totally cleansed, to come in with the blood and sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat to cover sins for one year. And when Jesus dies on the cross, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. And when He dies, the veil rips. Why? Because He's the perfect sacrifice, no longer covering sin. His blood cleanses sin. And when it rips, it's open house, baby. I don't have to be on the other side of a veil. I can come into communication with God. I'm in relationship with Him anytime I want because I place my faith in Him and because He destroyed the veil of sin separating us because I put my faith in Him and He shed His blood. Are you guys excited out there as I am? Man, what are you walking around all guilty for? Why do you walk around condemning yourself? He busted that way through. You are always in right standing with Him through the blood because you have placed your faith in Him. Yeah. Now, let me show you something cool. Because the priests were standing in there, right? Can you imagine if you're a priest there, this has been this way all your life, all of a sudden, rip right top to bottom, and you can look in there? <gasps> there's the Ark of the Covenant. Oh my gosh, you know, and they haven't even seen the Indiana Jones movie where you know, they look at the Ark and all of a sudden they all die. <laughs> That's a movie, guy. It's just a movie. But here it is, it's open house. And the priests, some of them who've never seen it, never looked in there they can look at, watch quickly, look at Acts chapter 6. Look at one of the aftermath things of that moment. Just quickly and we're coming back. Acts 6, and look at verse uh, verse 7. It says, "The word Acts 6 verse 7, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. What? How'd that happen? Because some of them were in there. Some of them saw the veil rent. They knew Jesus died at that time. It's rocking and rolling. The earth is shaking. Everything's happening, man. And it rips from top to bottom. And then when they hear the messes, they start putting it together and priests are getting saved. The least likely to get saved are getting saved. Mm. Verse 52. And the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were risen. These two verses are jumping after the resurrection, then come back, we'll come back to resurrection again in verse fifty four. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they enter the holy city and appear to many. What? Uncle Julio showed up? He's been gone 150 years. <laughs> There's people showing up here who've been dead 100 years, 1,000 years. They've come out of the tombs. They've resurrected. Why? Because Jesus went into Abraham's bosom, remember? And there were people who died waiting for the Messiah. And when he went there, he preached to them. And when he blew the coop in the resurrection, he took them with him. He took those who died in faith with him. Watch this. Watch this. Turn to Hebrews 11:37 37. Quickly turn there. I'm short on time now. And you may say, no, you have plenty of time. Now, we like to keep it to a certain structure here. Look at this verse. This is the Hall of Faith chapter of Hebrews 11. Verse 37 says, They were stones, talking about these great men and women of God who stood for the faith before Messiah ever came. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And you thought you had it rough as a Christian. (laughs) Men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts, and mountains, and caves, and in holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. These people of faith died, and they went into the good side, Abraham's bosom, and they waited, because there was no heaven yet for them, because Jesus hadn't died. They couldn't go there because their, their sins were still their sins only covered and never cleansed. But when Jesus blew the coop there, he took all those people with him in the resurrection. Isn't that awesome or what? And everybody's seen family members. Oh, look, there's so and so, and there's so and so. Hey, I think that's David. At least that's what I think the you know, the stone, you know, inscription looked like of him, or something like that. Is that wild? They're talking after resurrection. Now let's get back to crucifixion. Verse 54, watch what happens at the cross. Now the centurion, this guy is over a hundred men, centurion, centurion, over a hundred Roman soldiers. And those who were with them, keeping guard over Jesus. Now these guys are guarding at the cross because once a body died, they still had to guard it so nobody come and take the body off. And, because, and by the way, some of these guys didn't die for days, so they have to guard it until he they, till they died. Guarding Jesus, when they, now watch, when they saw The earthquake and the things that were happening, they're looking around, it's rocking and rolling, became very frightened. Is it okay to scare people in the kingdom of God? You better believe it is. And said, truly this was the Son of God. Now let me read the last two verses, I'm going to come back to truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to Him. Women were very instrumental in Jesus' ministry. They were the big financial givers, by the way. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, as James the last, not of James and John. And Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee are the James and John. So this is a different James of the Twelve. Back to verse 54. Truly this was a son of God. The centurion says that he sees everything and he looks at Truly this was a son of God. This guy's seen hundreds of crucifixions. He's overseen many crucifixions. What makes this one different? He's never seen, is my opinion, he's never seen a man go through such agony of crucifixion and handle it the way Jesus handled it. When you and I are going through tough times, and our fellow employees and who are unsaved and unsaved friends look at us, what do they see? Somebody who completely doubts there is a God or somebody who stays strong? Who in distress still trusts God, like Jesus did. Now once you last thought, last thought. He says, truly, this was the Son of God. Earlier, they tried to trick Jesus and they asked, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? He goes, give me a coin. They bring him a denarius. He asked, whose image and whose likeness is on the coin? Well, the image on one side of the coin was Caesar. The image on the other, uh, the uh, uh, likeness, uh, the likeness said, Son of God whoa son of god Well, i'm sorry i had it backwards the likeness is caesar the inscription says son of god got it right okay my mind was off for a second i think i'd get too excited about this stuff so for this roman guard pledges allegiance to caesar and the coins say caesar, show shows caesar on one side son of god on the other meaning caesar son of god for him to say this was a son of god this is no easy conversion, guys. He is turning his back on Caesar. He's turning his back on everything that he is about. And he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. He's removing his allegiance from Caesar and he's given it to Jesus. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only the Spirit of God and the catalyst was how Jesus handled trouble and pain and trial. That's our catalyst too, how we handle it. And maybe that'll be what leads people to Christ.